This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of the book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is available now wherever books are sold. Join me here every week as I talk with fellow anti-diet advocates about their journeys toward peace with food and their bodies. And by the way, on this show, we bleep out diet culture stuff like weight and calorie numbers, but we don't censor swear words or other adult language, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode 225 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with social worker, fellow anti-diet activist, and friend of the pod, Ashley Suruya, for a second FAQ episode where we respond to more frequently asked questions about health at every size, including what to do if you feel uncomfortable in your body at a higher weight, how to handle chronic illness, the effects of health behaviors versus social determinants of health, what to make of quote-unquote weight loss success stories, the importance of rest, and so much more. It's a great conversation, and I cannot wait to share it with you in just a moment. I'm not going to answer a listener question right now because this episode is basically one giant listener Q&A. So there are tons of answers to questions y'all have asked coming up in just a minute, so stay tuned. Meanwhile, if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on a future episode, either in the regular Q&As or in potentially another episode, FAQ episode that we do down the line, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want me to answer your questions much more quickly than I can here, you can come check out my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals, where I answer participants' questions every single month. And you also get a real treasure trove of special content helping you work through the principles of intuitive eating. And you also get access to our private community forum for daily support from my team and hundreds of awesome course members around the world. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is now available wherever books are sold. It's a great companion to this podcast because it goes into lots of depth about diet culture and the ways that it harms us with hundreds of scientific references and resources, literally hundreds, to help you make the anti-diet case to the people in your life. It also lays out the foundation of intuitive eating and helps you start making peace with food and your body. Just go to christyharrison.com book to get it. 
or just walk into any bookstore and ask for anti-diet. And right now it's on major display tables in Barnes and Noble and the Amazon stores. And even a lot of indie bookstores are putting it on front tables and putting it in the windows and stuff. So it's super exciting. It's really widely available in brick and mortar stores as well as online. Speaking of brick and mortar, I also want to let you know about a couple more book tour dates that I have coming up. So February 7th, I'll be on my home turf in New York City doing a talk at the kickoff event for the Weight Inclusive Nutrition and Dietetics Conference, WIND, with fellow anti-diet dietitian and past podcast guest Heather Kaplan. And then on February 21st, I'll be in Washington, D.C. for an event at Eaton Workshop, again with Heather, who is amazing at planning events in this anti-diet space and just a rock star and friend of the pod. So more details about those two events on my website at christyharrison.com slash book. And we should have a few more events to announce soon as well. So more TBA. And by the way, speaking of my book, I want to say if you've read it already and loved it, thank you so much. I'm so grateful for all of you who've shared how much the book has meant to you. It's really moving to me to see all of the underlines and places that you resonate with and people are tagging me in their Instagram stories and I'm resharing a lot of them because I just love it. So if you've already read the book, as I know so many of you have, I would love it if you left a nice Amazon review and also marked all the other five-star reviews as helpful because all of those things, those positive reviews that you leave and that you upvote in other people, help more people discover the book, which helps grow the anti-diet movement and ultimately helps make the world a safer place for people of all shapes and sizes, including the very largest sizes. So thank you for reading the book. Thank you for sharing about how it's moved you. Thank you for planning to read it if you haven't already. And thank you for all the nice reviews that you've left so far. And I'm really so grateful for all of you for all your support with this book. And now without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Ashley Saruya. So Ashley, welcome back to Food Psych. I'm so excited to have you for the second episode. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. The first one that we did was such a blast, and I was so excited when we decided to do another one. I know. FAQs Volume 2. I'm so excited for this. <laughs> but first, before we dive into that and I kind of explain what's going on here, can you just catch us up on everything you've been up to? Because we were looking and talking off mic about when the last time we spoke for the podcast was, and it was a little over two years ago. And by the time this comes out, it'll be maybe well over two years. So that's a long time. So what have you been up to in that time? Yeah, it's wild to think about. We just looked, yeah, we looked at the date. It was October of 2017, which I believe was my first like real year of my MSW program. I was a part timer. So I started off, it's a three year program and you start off without doing field. But I think I'm pretty sure the fall of 2017 was my first year of field. So right now I'm I'm in school. I'm still in school. I'm almost done. Uh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> and I will have an MSW by the summer. And in terms of my professional work, um, I've been doing you know very similar stuff that I was doing it back in 2017 with you, but just with lots of other people, and really focusing on held at every size content creation, specifically in terms of my own content creation, which has been sort of a marrying of my artistic desires and leanings with my Hayes work, which has been really, really fun. So I've been doing what I'm calling Hayes doodles, which is basically, it's not even all Hayes, some of it's mental health stuff. And, but you know, my whole paradigm is always Hayes informed. So I think we can call them Hayes doodles. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been doing 
I've been like selling merch, like stickers, and I'm currently in the process of making resource sheets out of my doodles, making little laminated flip books out of them. So I'm super excited about that. But yeah, I'm just kind of got my hands in a lot of pots and I'm stirring. So (laughs) (laughs) yep, that is the way. I love it. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm excited to check out your doodle that you sent me. I actually just got it in the mail today and was like, like haven't had a chance to open it yet, but it's my little (laughs) present for after we're done. So very excited. But yeah, I love everything you're doing and I'm so excited to talk with you again. So basically for anyone who doesn't know and probably most of the people listening do, but episode 127 that we did before was a frequently asked questions episode because when Ashley was working with me, we were talking about the fact that all these questions people have about intuitive eating, health at every size, this podcast and what the hell it's all about keep coming up over and over again. And we wanted a place to direct people to that answered some of the most frequently asked questions and kind of got people up to speed on the podcast so they could start there and know the basis of everything we talk about going forward because not every episode we we address the basics. So that was episode 127. That was two years ago. And now we're going to do version 2.0 of this frequently asked questions where we get into even more detail, dive even deeper, get into some nuances of haze and intuitive eating that we didn't cover in the last episode and just give people kind of another resource to share with friends and family who might be new to this information in this world or for new listeners to the podcast. Cause I think we have, we're going to have a lot of those with my book as well. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> my God, it feels like just yesterday we were like collecting quotes and, yes. you know, digging through all of the content to to put the book together. It's crazy. I know. It's wild. I really, these last, it was, it's been about two years. It'll be two years from book deal to publication. And it's like just mind blowing that it's flown by so fast. So very excited to finally be getting this baby out into the world. <laughs> so with people coming in from the book too, I think the book answers a lot of basic questions about intuitive eating and haze, but maybe doesn't get into certain specifics that I want to address here that we've been talking about in our list of questions. So I think this will kind of have something for everyone, for people who are coming to the book and new to the podcast or people who've been with the podcast for a long time and want resources to share with others or people who are brand new to the podcast and are like, you know, what the fuck is this? (laughs) So so with that, with the F-bombs out of the way and more to come probably, let's get into it. Yeah. So my job in the FAQ episodes, there's only two, but (laughs) is to ask the questions. (laughs) So you have a list of questions and the first one is, what if I'm just uncomfortable, quotes in uncomfortable, at this weight? Uh, So that is such a good question, and I think it comes up a lot for people who are in larger bodies working to try to give up diet culture and step into this new paradigm of health at every size and intuitive eating, really, which means, you know, letting go of the efforts to shrink their body and control their weight and just allow themselves to make peace with food, maybe eat a lot at first. Giving up the restrictions often means swinging over to the side of eating a lot. And it's something I call the restriction pendulum where you've been pulled over to the side of of restriction. And so the inevitable swing is going to be over to the side of abundance, eating a lot, maybe feeling out of control with food. I never say overeating, by the way, because it's, or I try not to say overeating because it's a kind of stigmatizing term, meaning, you know, over what amount, right? Over some quote unquote right amount that you're supposed to be eating. So I I say, you know, eating a lot or abundance. And so it's very normal for people to have that swing, but I think it's also very understandable in this culture and very common 
for people in larger bodies who are having that swing or who are anticipating that swing to feel really scared and to feel like, you know, if I give up restricting, if I give up trying to shrink my body or maintain my lower weight, then I, my weight's going to go up and up and I'm going to be subject to all of the things that that comes along with in this culture. And oftentimes people will talk about weight stigma as one piece of that. And I think that's really important. And we get into that a lot on the podcast. But another thing people talk about with that is this fear of discomfort or this feeling of current discomfort that you're in a certain body size right now that is making you feel uncomfortable where you're having physical sensations like pain in your knees or difficulty walking without getting winded or chafing or things like that that make it difficult to move around in your body in the world. And I think the conventional wisdom, and I, I spoke about this at greater length on a couple episodes of the podcast, so I'll quote from those and send you all to those for more information, but this idea that it's the weight causing the discomfort. It's the weight causing these things, I think, is a product of diet culture and a product of weight stigma. And I think it's really important to question that because definitely there, of course, are some things that are physical symptoms and sensations that go along with being in a larger body that really are not the product of weight stigma, like chafing, right? That's just a you know, physiological reality for a lot of people, which by the way, I, my thighs rub together when I walk as well. So like that happens for thin people too, but it definitely happens for people in larger bodies, I think to a greater degree. And also there is greater stigma placed on people in larger bodies in general. So that when things like chafing happen, it's not just, okay, what can I do to make myself more comfortable? It's, oh my God, my body's wrong at this size. I need to lose weight in order to fix this. My thighs wouldn't be rubbing together if I were thin. I need to lose weight stat. And so I've addressed this in the podcast with a number of people because, you know, admittedly, I'm in a smaller body. I'm a thin person. I've never experienced what it's like to move through the world in a larger body. And so when I get this question, especially when I've gotten this question in the past, I've been curious, like, what do people in larger bodies say? What do prominent fat activists in our field say about this? How do they handle this question? Because the reality is that we can't actually shrink anyone's body long-term, right? We don't have the technology. We don't have the way. We don't have the diet. You know, no diet works long-term for any but a tiny fraction of people. And most diets end up forcing people to regain more weight than they lost. And so with that, we have to acknowledge that we don't have the tools to shrink larger bodies permanently. So what can we do in the meantime? What can we do to acknowledge the physical sensations that people might be feeling in their larger bodies and how can we help people navigate them. So in episode 113, I had a great conversation with Sonia Renee Taylor, who is a prominent fat activist, founder of The Body Is Not an Apology, and author of the book by the same name. And she had some great things to say about this in terms of being able to separate out what's coming from weight stigma and what's coming from the material realities of your body and the world. And when something is coming from weight stigma, it might look like, you know, as she put it, what does uncomfortable even mean, right? Because it can mean so many different things. And the word discomfort means different things to different people. And it can be so loaded with all this baggage from diet culture and weight stigma. And so if discomfort means you're uncomfortable in your clothes and your clothes are too tight, and they know she says, why is that, right? Let's look at why that is. Is it because you're afraid to go up a size? In which case, that's 
internalized weight stigma, right? That's self-stigma not allowing you to buy clothes that might be more comfortable and be more forgiving and allow you to move through the world more freely versus, you know, if it's something like chafing or if it's something like, as Reagan Chastain and I discussed in episode 119, which is another great resource on this, if it's something like walking up the stairs without getting winded, well, there are tools for those things too, right? So for walking up the stairs or any sort of athletic activity, Reagan talks about how the pillars, and Reagan, by the way, is a health coach, fat athlete, a marathoner, a triathlon competitor, So she really knows her stuff when it comes to movement and physical activity. And her thinking on this that she spoke about in that episode is that the pillars of athletic strength are, or I'm going to botch this, but it's like the pillars of athletic (laughs) performance, I think she said. Um, And you can listen to episode 119 for the direct quote, but it's like the pillars of athletic performance are strength, stamina, flexibility, and sports-specific technique. I think those are the four that she talked about. So when you're looking to improve your performance on any and in any capacity, for example, you know, running around after your kids or walking up the stairs without getting winded, you can focus on those things without having to change the size of your body at all. And remember, that's not going to be effective anyway, and that actually carries a lot more risks than benefits. And so working on strength might mean getting used to walking the stairs, right? Getting used to doing the activity. That's also sports-specific technique. You know, not that walking the stairs is a sport. It is for me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a sport for me too, honestly. (laughs) Oh my God, it's the worst. (laughs) Yeah. And in New York City, you have to do it a lot. (laughs) I used to live in a floor walk-up. Yeah, same. Yeah, that's your movement. That's your physical activity. And you get good at it. Once you're practiced at it, it's like you get to be more capable of doing it without being as exhausted every time. You might still be winded, but you're not going to be panting and taking a break at floor two like you might be at the beginning. And that's true for people in bodies of all sizes. You know, I know that when I'm away from any activity, including walking stairs for a while, you know, if I take a vacation to somewhere flat and then I come home and have to take the subway and walk all around the city, I get exhausted too. It's like getting back into anything can take some time. And so this idea that you can develop your sport-specific technique, you can develop your strength, you can develop your stamina or flexibility for some athletic endeavors is important and necessary too. All of those things are things that you can develop without having to lose a single pound. And in fact, efforts at weight loss can often hinder your athletic ability and performance. I don't know if it was in that episode or in her previous appearance on the podcast, but Reagan and I also talked about, I think it was in that episode, Reagan and I also talked about how when fat people go to the doctor for knee pain, they're told to lose weight. And what are they prescribed for weight loss? You know, usually it's like cardiovascular activity, including running or biking or things that put extra pressure on your knees. They're not told to rest and ice it, and they're not given physical therapy or x-rays and MRIs the way that people in smaller bodies would be when presenting with the same issue. And so people in larger bodies who present at the doctor's office, and by the way, I sort of toggle back and forth between saying people in larger bodies or higher weight people which are value-neutral terms for being in a larger body, and fat in the spirit of the fat acceptance movement, which is what, you know, Reagan and Sonia Renee Taylor and all these great fat activists that I know, including you, say in a reclaimed way, right, as as a self-description that is neutral and not value judgment-laden. And so for anyone who's new to the podcast who is confused about that, I usually try to say fat in solidarity with people who are using it in that reclaimed way. 
I know that for people who are new to this kind of movement and are hearing someone in a smaller body say that word, it can feel sometimes hurtful because it's a word that was directed at you as an epithet in the past. And that's never something that I would want to trigger in people. So I'm trying to be mindful of using other value-neutral terms as well as the term fat in order to highlight that people are reclaiming that term and it's a great term and that it does have some baggage for a lot of people. Anyway, so getting (laughs) sort of sidetracked there, but (laughs) with this idea of athletic performance, Reagan and I talked a lot about that in episode 119. And the other piece of this is comfort and access, right? So Jay Aprileo of the blog Comfy Fat speaks to this really eloquently, and they talked about this in episode 210, a more recent episode, about finding ways to find more physical comfort in your body at a larger size. And Jay identifies as super fat. They're also non-binary. And so they talk about, you know, moving through the world in these marginalized identities and trying to find ways to ease their experience of doing this. And they have a lot of great resources in terms of access to different, like we talked a lot on that episode about hygiene. Jay wrote a great piece about fat hygiene tools. Such an important piece. I send it to people all the time. Yeah. And it's really, it's so useful and it's so destigmatizing, I think too, because I think that's one aspect of physical comfort that people are often talking about when they say, what if I'm just uncomfortable at this size? Like, I can't even clean myself properly, you know, like that's a reality, I think, for some people in larger bodies where they just don't have the proper tools yet in order to do that. And so in episode 210, Jay talks about a lot of their favorite tools and strategies for developing greater comfort, for increasing access to hygiene, for increasing access to different spaces. And so I think it's really another layer of this is is talking about accessibility and the tools that exist now, but also the accessibility that needs to be built in to our built environment going forward so that people in larger bodies have greater access and are not stigmatized by the very structure of our society, by airplane seats that are too small, theater seats that are too small, you know, bathrooms that don't accommodate them. Actually, on the the issue of airplane seats, Jay had a great tip in that episode, too, about Southwest Airlines, which has this amazing policy called the passenger of size policy, which I think is maybe the only one of any airline that exists. I think it is, yeah. Which is incredible. So go Southwest. (laughs) (laughs) And that you can actually get a second seat for free if you need a second seat on Southwest. And I think even a third seat if you need a third seat. So it's pretty incredible. And I think more airlines should really do that. So I think those are some things that you might want to consider if you're someone who is thinking, what if I'm just uncomfortable in this larger body, right? It's like, A, sort of teasing apart what is genuine physical discomfort versus what is internalized weight stigma that is compounding your physical discomfort or creating a sense of discomfort around a particular issue that might have actual tools and solutions that could be used to address it. Like, for chafing, using a body balm or powder or wearing thigh society or some other little bike shorts under your clothes or lots of different sort of tools to address that, right? And so just thinking through it in that way can be helpful in untangling this monolithic forest of diet culture beliefs about 
how your body is supposed to feel and how your larger body is standing in the way of that freer feeling to really get at the heart of, okay, what are the specific issues I'm dealing with and what are weight neutral ways to address each of those specific issues that has nothing to do with shrinking my body. Yeah. I mean, I have so many things to say, but I will try to keep it brief. You know, the thing that comes to mind really strongly is like I'm looking outside and it's snowing right now. This is our first snow of the season and I'm lucky enough to work from home. So I get to watch it out the window. And, you know, I know that it's cold outside. So in order to make myself more comfortable, if I were to go outside, I would probably put on a scarf, a hat, a jacket. If I was lucky enough to be able to purchase a jacket and have the funds to do so, I would do certain things to make myself warmer. You know, I remember when I was younger and we would have snow days. My house had a, um, it wasn't a fireplace, but it was like a a furnace, I guess. And, you know, we would come in and and we'd, we'd hang all of our snow gear, which again, we were wearing snow gear because it's snowing out. So we were wearing all of our snow gear and we hung it all up to dry and then we'd sit in front of the fire because it's cold. There are so many examples in which we know that there are certain things that we can do to alleviate discomfort. There's such a normal part of being a human, right? Discomfort is, is a reality. But what happens is that there are certain types of discomfort, quote unquote, that are moralized. So, you know, I think for marginalized people, whether it's my body is standing in the way, or like I'm thinking specifically for Black folks who have kinkier hair, the process of straightening it, which actually really damages your hair, you know, so they don't want to experience the discomfort of the potential racial microaggressions that they might experience because of their hair texture. And, you know, Instead of being able to embrace their hair texture, get products that make your hair, hair feel healthy, that's you know expanding more in the last five or so years with the natural hair movement. But say five, 10 years ago, that wasn't allowed. That wasn't the, the answer or the solution to any kind of discomfort around a, a Black person's hair, right? It was, you need to change it and you need to adhere to whatever the societal idea, ideal of hair is, whether or not that's actually good for your hair. So you know, I think size in so many ways is exactly the same. I mean, obviously size and, and race are, are different modes of oppression, but oppression works similarly across the board. And just like kinky hair or frizzier hair is considered, you know, not ideal, larger bodies are considered not ideal or are considered bad, are considered gross. Are, you know, like that's where the other piece of hygiene comes in too, because fat people very frequently are, you know, everyone has body odor, Right. But if someone is fat and has body odor, well, it's because they're gross and can't clean themselves and they're fat. It's not, oh, they were walking a lot today and it's hot out. So it's like normal experiences, normal bodily experiences that basically all of us have are suddenly pathologized simply because you're in a larger body while experiencing them. And then you have the added layer of not feeling like you're allowed to make concessions or to demand that people make space for you to be comfortable. You know, like there are so many cases in which we are taught to ask for things. But in the cases of fatness, in the case of disability, you know, this is where fatness and disability really overlap. And one of the reasons why I think we as hate providers really need to be allies in the disability movement as well it has a different flavor to it. And I think that also goes back to the internalized fat phobia piece. And that's, that's the other part I wanted to comment on just sort of like from a mental health standpoint, because I come at this from like a, a therapist point of view. So much of 
what we perceive as physical discomfort is rooted in emotional shame. And that's not to say that physical discomfort is not real. It absolutely is. But if I feel uncomfortable in my body, and this is actually something I used to do. So I also have a chafing situation. I've always had large thighs, like no matter what size I have been. But when I was uh, younger, I remember thinking to myself, there was a particular day where the chafing was really, really bad. And if you've ever had really bad chafing, like there's bleeding there, like it is so, so painful. And my thought to myself was not, wow, maybe I should get a mega babe stick, which wasn't out at that point, but you know, <laughs> a, a, a chafing stick of some kind, bike shorts, which I now love. My thought was, great, this is going to motivate me when I next have my meal to eat less so that I can lose weight and have smaller thighs. Regardless of the fact that, like, as you mentioned, most people's thighs rub together. That's just kind of how biology works, unless or unless you have really wide hips, it's very uncommon. But that was my approach. And if you think about that from like a mental health standpoint, you know, we're talking about like how to make sure we are taking care of ourselves. Because I think in a lot of ways, some of the pushback with Hayes is like, well, I want to take care of myself. And what you're proposing from, you know, the Hayes paradigm, that's not going to help me take care of myself. That's a big, one of the big pushbacks. And it's really interesting to me because I would argue that having a weight inclusive approach to everything is really the only way we can truly take care of ourselves because it means we're allowing space for us to exist as we are now rather than trying to literally like shrink ourselves or push ourselves into a mold of what is allowed to exist without question which to be honest even if you look at the people who are most privileged in society and have all of these sort of different areas of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess privilege. They still struggle. You know, they still experience so much of this like internalized shame because it doesn't matter if you look like the ideal in some ways, because internally we're just told over and over again that it's never enough. So we know that it's never enough. We know that we can never reach whatever the goal is. And yet we run ourselves on this hamster wheel constantly trying to reach it. And it's not about running faster. It's not about running harder. It's about getting off the damn wheel. And I think this also kind of feeds into one of the other highlighted questions we have, which is what if I need to lose weight for my health? And weight cycling is not good for your health. Right. Stress is not good for your health. Like all the things that we do in so many ways at diet culture's behest that we're told is going to promote our health actually really fucks with us. Yes. And not just in the physical sense. And there's also a lot of studies that show us that someone's level of internalized fat phobia, so how they view themselves, is in some ways more indicative of the severity of their eating disorder pathology behavior than their size. It's also indicative or it's associated with worse health outcomes too. No matter people's body size all across the weight spectrum, the more internalized weight stigma you have, the worse your health is overall. Right. Because if you hate your body, are you going to take care of it? If you hate yourself, because really, like when we talk about hating our bodies, what are we talking about? We're talking about hating ourselves. If we're really going to get into it, which I think we should. Um, 
<laughs> you know, it's about it's about a lot more than our bodies, right? Our bodies are this sort of like physical shell that that we project onto the world, and you know, this is how we present. But when when we look at ourselves and we're like, oh, I hate this, I hate that, and whatnot, and the other, it's really about I don't feel good enough. And if you don't feel good enough, if you don't feel worthy of respect, of ethical care, of compassion, if, if none of these things, if you don't feel that they apply to you, it doesn't matter how many kale smoothies you drink or how many hours on the treadmill you go, you're never going to feel whole. And that's true too. If you, you know, no matter how little your thighs rub together, no matter how not winded you are walking up the stairs, no matter how quote unquote comfortable you are in your body in specific ways, it's never going to make you feel entirely comfortable, entirely at home in your body to be pursuing weight loss and this constant wheel, as you said, running on this hamster wheel of trying to shrink yourself to the unattainable ideal. Like it's it's never going to be enough to help you completely get rid of your internalized weight stigma. And I forget the episode number, but Lisa Dubriel was on the podcast in a great episode a while back. So good. And she had this amazing quote that was, weight loss doesn't cure people of their internalized weight stigma. Yes. Weight loss doesn't heal body image issues, you know? And she knows that from experience too, as a super fat woman who had an eating disorder for many years and the constant pursuit of shrinking herself never brought her the ease in her body, the comfort, the sense of confidence that she pursued, that she wanted and desired and deserved, that we all deserve. Right. It constantly just took her further and further away, as it does for all of us, from that feeling of ease, confidence, and rootedness that, you know, she she shared in that episode, she now feels in a body that's vastly larger than it ever was before at those moments earlier in her life when she wasn't able to access that sense of self-worth. And so, you know, I think it's really true. And people like Lisa's stories are testaments to the fact that you can find incredible self-worth and value and self-care and comfort in a much larger body that has nothing to do with the actual size of your body, but everything to do with your mindset and your relationship with your body, your relationship with food and how you've decided to view the world and demand access and not let it take away your sense of comfort and ease in your body, which is your home. You know, it's all of our homes. It's our original home from birth to death. It's what we carry with us at all times. And if you're not at home in your body, it's incredibly alienating for you from the world. Yeah. And I think it also brings up this concept of agency, you know, having agency over one's body, which I think is something that, again, marginalized folks are really, it's taken from them from the get-go. Because not only are you not allowed to exist just as you are, but you're meant to sort of conform and at, at no matter the cost. And everything that we're saying is not to say that structural bias and sizeism don't exist because they do. And, you know, the power of positivity is not going to get rid of that. No. But, or and, because it's not really a negation, and <laughs> <laughs> we do have the ability, if we are helped along the way, usually, because most of us need help to understand this and to see this, that we can take our agency back and we can create an approach to our own healthcare that works for us, that does feel in tandem with 
whatever our body says it needs. You know, like I'm still discovering different ways that my mental health or my physical health impact the other. I'm always discovering that. And when I was younger and when I was really in the midst of my eating disorder, that terrified me that I would never have a concrete answer to like feeling great all the time. And so much healing has come from understanding that I'm not going to feel great all the time and that that's really okay. And that I'm allowed to feel like shit and wallow and complain. I'm allowed to do that. I'm also allowed to feel like shit and say, okay, I'm worthy enough to do what I need to do and what I want to do to help me not feel like shit. And of course, there are structural barriers in place there. But even being able to just understand your inherent worthiness as a human being, no matter what, I think is such a profound shift and is where many people get stuck in terms of transitioning to a haze paradigm, you know, transitioning and saying, okay, yes, okay, you can perform health behaviors at, you know, lots of different sizes and health isn't dependent on weight, all that's great. But at the end of the day, I don't care if you're healthy. I don't care what size you are. I don't care what, what you look like, what your ability is. You are a worthy human being, period, end of story. Yes. And if we can't all get on board with that, I think we're going to have a really hard time moving past a lot of this sort of like nitpickiness, which I think we're going to get into as well, just in terms of like people casting aspersions about Hayes and being like, you're not nuanced. You're not considering IBS and you're not considering medical nutrition therapy. And it's like, oh Lord. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. <laughs> the sort of what about healthism? Cause I think that is really <sighs> important. And yeah. So the sort of idea of like, I think there's a couple things here, right? There's a couple questions, which is like, yeah, what about health? What if I just need to lose weight for my health? Or how does Hayes address health as though the H and Hayes did not stand for health? Because people <laughs> don't sort of seem to miss that sometimes. Well, it's either that or they take it the other way. And they're like, well, maybe you should take health out of the name because because whenever I try to say to people, but remember, it's about social justice. It's not about health. They're like, well, then why is it in the name? You should rename it. It's bad marketing. And I'm like, oh, my Lord, you just uh, can't win. You can't win. <laughs> it's true. And it's true that it is not just about health, that it's a it's, you know, about people's place in the world. It's about giving people the social justice and the tools they need in order to take care of their well-being if they so choose, if they so desire, to whatever extent is available to them. And that health is not a moral obligation. Health is not a barometer of worthiness. It's not something that you have to perform in order to be worthy of basic human decency and respect. And also, Hayes, the model of Hayes exists to allow people to pursue health and well-being, physical and mental and social and emotional and spiritual health at the truly holistic level, not just the physical, if they so choose. If they, if they want to pursue health in all those ways, Hayes is there to give them that alternative. It really grew out of a healthcare system that was so stigmatizing to larger bodied people that the only solution they've been given is lose weight. You know, you have strep throat as Reagan Chastain shared in her <laughs> first episode, lose weight, not, oh, take this antibiotic for this acute infection that can't possibly be cured by losing weight. Have knee pain, lose weight. Getting winded, have your thighs rubbed together, lose weight. Need to get pregnant, but you're not able to lose weight. All of these different things 
are just the solution, the one-size-fits-all solution that's given to larger-body people is lose weight. And the problem with that is that one-size-fits-all solution doesn't work. It doesn't work for virtually anyone, and it actually causes more harm than good because as you said earlier, you know, the weight cycling piece, right? Weight cycling puts people's health at greater risk than just staying the same size, even if the size was larger, even you know, all across the weight spectrum, weight cycling is a risk factor. And the weight stigma of being told to lose weight also puts people's health at risk. And so when we're stigmatizing people, when we're shaming them, when we're telling them that they quote unquote need to lose weight for their health, we're actually taking them farther away from the health that we purport to seek for them and the health that they're probably seeking for themselves. And, you know, the other piece of it, too, is that health behaviors account for, what, 25% of our actual health? Health behaviors total, food and nutrition, 10%. So it's like... So food and nutrition, 10%, health behaviors, 25%. And that's like CDC information, you know, so like, I don't want to hear anybody like, that's bad data. It's not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And before the CDC came out with that, I, I quoted a couple other social determinants of health researchers in my book that said 30%. So it's actually gone down since that. And so it really points to this, you know, we were talking about healthism and and this idea that we must perform health in order to be seen as worthy. But if we really break down like how much that's impacting your health, how many people actually have the ability to engage in health behaviors, it, it is such a limited view of public health. And it is truly, and I mean, in, I guess in my opinion, limiting us as a country, as a, a nation, uh, an international community to continually focus on eat your fruits and veggies and like move a certain amount each day instead of saying, let's tackle poverty. Let's tackle homelessness. Let's talk about food deserts and grocery stores. Systemic racism. and <laughs> Right. Let's talk about how all of these different things impact our health, how intergenerational trauma, how compounding poverty, you know, like if you come from a low-income family, you're more likely to be in a low-income family, despite the American dream myth that we're all sold. So it's just like, it's all so, so, so much bigger than increasing the quote-unquote obesity epidemic line of everyone's getting fatter. Right. It's like that. that is such a reductive way to look at the way humanity is adapting and shifting to changing times. Right. And the way that, you know, social determinants of health bear out on people's health outcomes in differential ways across the income spectrum and the race spectrum and the size spectrum and all of that, so that people who are experiencing greater discrimination on any measure are more likely to suffer worse health. Right. No matter what. Right. Even if they make more money, which is, you know, usually class is like one of the biggest predictors. But I, if I recall correctly, in one of my public health classes, one of the things they talk about is like even in the highest bracket, African-American men specifically still have higher risks of basically every high mortality disease that we track. 
Yeah. And being a stigmatized group is stressful. We know that it literally puts stress on the body. It increases people's cortisol levels to experience racism, to experience fat phobia and weight stigmatizing microaggressions. And so people who experience that on a day-to-day basis in our society, even if they don't deeply internalize it and they just go through it without necessarily internalizing as much, people still have greater levels of, you know, risks for all sorts of diseases than the people who don't experience those things. And the ones that have greater internal, you know, especially with weight stigma, when it comes to weight stigma, those who have greater internalized weight stigma and experience those microaggressions or macroaggressions have the greatest risk. And that's probably a lot of folks listening to the podcast, you know, people who really struggle in their relationships with food and their bodies and experience, you know, for people in larger bodies who experience a world that's hostile to them and that throws out weight stigma at them at every turn, that actually does lead to greater health risks. And so, you know, to my mind, and and it sounds like, I mean, obviously I know for yours too, and, <laughs> and for so many of the folks we talked to on this podcast, the solution is not shrink larger bodies, you know, shrink people so that they're no longer in this stigmatized group, which is the solution offered by the quote unquote weight management people. But the solution in the Hayes view is We need to stop the weight stigma. We need to change society so that it's no longer hostile to people in larger bodies, so that fat is not an insult. It's just a neutral term like tall or short or brown haired. And so that people's health outcomes stop being so disparate on this measure and P.S. on every measure like racism and sexism and ableism and all the rest. We need to stop this discrimination in our society if we do want to help people's health and well-being. And again, speaking not just about physical health, because who cares? I mean, you know, I care, but like it's not the be-all, end-all it's made out to be in diet culture, but also their mental health, their emotional ties and connections, their social well-being, all of it, because that's all of that is what makes up people's overall well-being and life satisfaction. Right. And, and even on the individual level, because I know some people are like, I don't want to talk about oppression and how it impacts health. Like, okay, fine. You're <laughs> listening to the wrong podcast. <laughs> even on the individual level, like I'm thinking about complex trauma and the impact of growing up in a very violent or abusive household and the amount of just, just like how experiencing microaggressions every day, your body's pumping out cortisol all the time. Your body does the exact same thing if it if it perpetually thinks it's in a dangerous scenario, whether that scenario is uh, racial in nature or it's just about the fact that your parents are screaming at each other and, and, you know, there's domestic violence. And even just living in a low income area where, unfortunately, it's more common for there to be violence is a health risk. These are more important and more demonstrably impactful than putting a freaking piece of broccoli on your plate, you know, like it's just, and like, I understand that for people who have everything they want and aren't concerned about their physical bodily safety, that this might not come to the forefront of your mind as a health risk. But the research shows us that a, the majority of people are not in that situation, right? There's only a very small percentage of people who always feel safe just because of the world that we live in. And B, that it's so much more negatively impactful than changing your food or movement habits is positively impactful. 
Absolutely. Because, yeah, again, changing your food or movement habits, food and movement habits at the population level have been shown to account for 10% of modifiable health outcomes. 10%, it's nothing, you know, compared to that 70% or 75% that is social determinants of health. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about addressing things like systemic racism and poverty and violence. Those things have a demonstrably greater measurable impact on people's health than food and movement do. And yet in diet culture, the it's it's considered the opposite. In diet culture, food and movement are heralded as the be-all, end-all of health, that you are what you eat, and if you eat right and exercise, quote-unquote, you'll be able to stave off all kinds of diseases, you'll be perfectly well, and of course it has to be, you know, the right kind of eating based on whatever the diet du jour is telling you. So the keto people think it's keto, the Whole30 people think it's Whole30, the intermittent fasting people think it's intermittent fasting, the, you know, banting diet people from the 1860s thought it was basically Atkins or keto type of thing, which... Well, right. They recycle the same things over and over. It's the same shit over and over. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, that was one, you know, fascinating thing in, in researching my book was finding out the history of diet culture is really just the same stuff over and over again, separated by, you know, a few decades or a few centuries. It's... There's never anything truly new. And all of these diets that purport to be the new secret to unlocking permanent fat loss all have something in them that's been tried before and failed. And the reason the diet, you know, diet industry is a $72 billion operation in the U.S. and 400-some billion around the world is because nothing works, because it doesn't work long-term for any more than a tiny fraction of people. And, you know, the people who are in that tiny group of unicorns who do seem to be quote-unquote success stories at long-term weight loss, at least a certain percentage of them, if not everyone, is struggling mightily in their relationship with food. They have a, you know, I would say probably everyone in that group has a disordered relationship with food in the sense that it is not intuitive, that they're constantly thinking about food in their bodies and not able to really be at peace. But for some people, it interferes with their life more than others. Some people can be fine and sort of happy going along that way. But I've talked to many, many people who were those quote-unquote weight loss success stories who were not fine, who were not okay, who were struggling and completely disordered with food and completely feeling out of control and not knowing where to turn, even though they, you know, on the outside, they were getting all this applause and good feedback for losing weight. Right. It's not sustainable. It's not possible for the vast majority of people to lose weight. And so we really need another way. And that's, that's where Hayes comes in. Yeah. And the other piece, and this is kind of like more philosophical than it is like talking about diet culture, but it's all tied in really. <laughs> I feel like in so many ways, so much, I guess, I, I guess this is about diet culture. So much of the way diet culture functions is rooted in this individualistic perspective on how to live our lives. So we've completely divorced ourselves, at least in the sort of like Western culture, from the reality that is humans are social creatures. Humans thrive in community. And one of the most dangerous things for your health is to not have social connections, right? And if you think about all of these different attempts at public health policy tweaks or um, diet culture's latest fad, whatever it is, it's all about how do I as an individual uh, either 
um, put my agenda on others in the terms of in, in public health sphere, or how do I as an individual ascend to godliness and, you know, become unkillable because I eat all the kale in the world. I don't have anything against kale. I have no idea. It's called <laughs> it's a, the poster child of that kind of. Right. I just, I, I really have been thinking a lot about community care mm-hmm. in lieu of, not in lieu of self-care, but like in conjunction with, because we've really gotten away from what self-care truly is, which is about like taking care of yourself. Uh, <laughs> and as a response to oppression too, you know, I think the roots of that term even are for activists, for anti-racist activists who are working to fight racial oppression, needing a way to recharge and restore after this fight that can be extremely depleting. And I think that's true of any fight for justice, that, you know, if you were to just go hard all the time on fighting for your rights or fighting for the rights of others and marginalized people in society, you could burn out so quick because the fight is so big and so much more than any one individual can do in our lifetime. We're probably not going to see the fruits of our labors in our lifetime. We might see some. We might see some early blossoms and maybe some a few early fruits on the trees, but you know, there's not going to be this flourishing that hopefully there will generations from now if we keep working. And so knowing that, knowing that the fight is bigger than all of us and that we can't just put the pedal to the metal all the time on fighting for the things we believe in. We have to have self-care. We have to take a pause and a break and restore and recharge ourselves in order that we can go back out and do good work in the world. So I think that that piece is missing a lot from the mainstream conception of self-care, you know, thinking about like getting your nails done or whatever, which can be, (laughs) you know, can be that form of self-care of recharging after fighting oppression and just like struggling to stay alive in the world as a marginalized person or woman. But also, you know, it needs to have that other layer, I think, of awareness so that it's not just about this materialistic thing that capitalism loves to seize on and is like hashtag self-care, you know, buy this thing. For sure. And, you know, it's, it's funny because like, I'm, well, first thing on the, on the point of the nails, like joy is self-care. So I think that's super important to, to point out, especially for marginalized people who very often like just have all the joy sucked out of their lives. That is absolutely self-care. And also, you know, like I'm in school right now to become a social worker and, you know, they talk about self-care all the time because it's a difficult field and you're constantly experiencing secondary trauma and just, you know, you're, you're in the weeds with people all day. And the other day, one of my teachers yet again brought it up and, and I raised my hand and I was just like, you know, I can appreciate that we have this conversation and it's great that we do because I know in the past they didn't even talk about it, but it kind of, rubs me the wrong way that we're sitting here preaching self-care, self-care, self-care when our program doesn't pay the interns. In fact, we have to pay in order to complete our field. And I know you understand that as well as someone who's trained like an RD. Oh, yeah. In addition, you have all the schoolwork. You have the fact that most of us also work work because who getting a master's degree like isn't working. You know, so it, it really just points to this whole like oh, let's cheer about this sort of small concept that we've co-opted and made into like capitalist gains, but let's not actually create the context in which people have the ability to even think about taking care of themselves. Such a good point. Which is why I think community care is so important because it's like, we have to remind each other. We have to say to each other, like, no, sit down, 
no, take a break. Because there is no, considering, you know, the, the world that we live in, especially like in New York City, there is no point that we feel like we're allowed to take a break. It doesn't exist. And every time you do, there's this guilt, you know, there's this feeling like you had to earn it and you didn't do enough to do that. Well, and I think that gets back to diet culture too, where, you know, that comes into play a lot for people with exercise and physical activity, where the idea of taking a break, resting, allowing yourself to do nothing, which like we all so desperately need for self-care, feels like it's not enough, feels like you're going to quote unquote ruin your health or whatever. And it and that thinking goes back to this larger capitalist issue of like making people feel like failures if they're not productive 24-7. That's like what the system wants you to think. And so it's playing out at this micro level in every decision you make to go to the gym, even though, though you'd rather relax and sit on the couch and catch up on some fun TV or whatever. And maybe relaxing would actually be better for your health. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, Often it is. It is, right? Because like if you think of like, yes, there are, there's value to be gained from moving your body, right? We have, well, I personally never experienced the whole like endorphin high that everyone talks about. Yeah, me neither really. Yeah, I just, I never got it. But so that's another case in which like the one size fits all really doesn't apply because if that doesn't happen for you, then it's not as enjoyable. You know, but people don't believe you. And it's like, no, it's because you're fat. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in the case of like movement, like we were just saying, you know, there's this rule that like if you move every blah, 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 we would bleep that out, but I'll just say blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Self bleep. Right. <laughs> that, that's the ideal way to promote your health. And in actuality, maybe it's you need a nap or maybe it's you need to spend time with your pets. Maybe it's you need to walk in nature. Like we have lots of research that shows us that spending time in green spaces is extraordinarily beneficial for your stress levels and, and your mental health and your physical health. You know, like we have all of these different things that we know can have a real impact on how we feel and how we're able to care for ourselves and, and how we are able to build resilience. But because there's such a primacy placed on food and movement. It's like none of those things exist. And that, yeah, we're really locked away and cut off from the things that would bring us so much more joy, so much more sustainable well-being than just food and movement. Because if you're pursuing food and movement single-mindedly, it's actually not good for your well-being. That's my view. And I think the view of most folks in Hayes is that food and movement should not be the be all end all of a well-lived life. Well, because it's inflexible. Yeah. Ultimately, the, the best things that we can do for our health are things that are flexible. So you have to have multiple coping mechanisms at your disposal or not you have to, but it is more health promoting to have <laughs> multiple coping mechanisms at your disposal, to have various different ways that you care for yourself and care for your well-being, because in certain contexts, you won't be able to do a single thing, right? So like, say, if your single thing is running and then you get an injury, well, what are you going to do to take care of yourself if you can't run anymore? You know, there are so many things that you can do, but if you only think that you can run, well, then maybe you're going to like keep running and keep hurting yourself because that's the good thing to do for you. No, <laughs> right. That's not helpful to anyone. Right. And it's just not, it's not realistic. It's just not real. It acts as if we're all somewhat wealthy, white men or cis men, cis women who have all the time in the world to do whatever it is we 
have decided is important, which is usually not actually what's important, but is what is guided by capitalism. Ugh, yes. it, like that, you know, that is what so much of the advertising is focused on, so much of what the health recommendations are focused on. And, and it's, it's, it's couched in all of this scientific language to make you think that it's like inherently true, but it's just not. And, and, and it's not to say that science is all bullshit because it's not. But we have to be able to look at science with a critical eye. And we have to be able to understand that even the most self-aware individual still grew up right here, right with you, right in this culture. Yes. That gets back to the idea that science is telling people to do all these esoteric things with food and movement and that that is the way. I think gets back to one of the other questions that you touched on, which is this idea of nuance and making room for... Right. Do you want me to read that question so we can... Sure. Yeah, yeah. So our last bolded question, because we had way more, but of course we've only gotten to three. Um <laughs> <laughs> the last one. Talk about what anti-diet and haze really says about chronic illness, medical nutrition therapy, and discuss, quote, nuance and why calling out anti-diet folks for a supposed lack of nuance is often a cover for diet culture or eating disorder behaviors. And I know this is something that I personally have a lot of experience with. And I actually, that's why I started my own little mini FAQ podcast. It's like not a, official at all. I like cough in the middle of it and, you know, <laughs> But um, it's literally called Navigating Nuance because it, it was this experience that I kept having over and over again with people having conversations about diet culture and haze in which, you know, they would say things like, well, you're not considering that I have all these gut issues and you're not considering um, that I'm how many pounds, quote, overweight and therefore unhealthy. Like, you're not considering all of these things. And it's like, no, um, we actually are considering all these things. I just can't put it in an Instagram caption. Right. <laughs> it's really hard to get at every single thing that, you know, every single person has individually. Which is what individual sessions are for, which is why we do this work individually as well as at this public level. Yeah. And that's the other, and I think we talked about this, the last recording that we lost too, is that like the way that we interact on Instagram is not a hundred percent reflective of how individual therapy, individual therapy, individual nutrition therapy goes, because it can't be, because you can't account for every single individual difference on like a population level. You just can't. And so I, you know, I think it's important to always acknowledge that in whatever you're saying, like this might not apply to you because it's but if you're sitting in front of someone who does intuitive eating work or who does health at every size work and you have specific limitations, which we all do, whether they're related to our biology, our circumstances, how much money we have at our disposal, what kind of access we have to healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. Like we all have something that gets in our way. So when you're sitting down with someone on an individual level, that's going to be taken into account and it must be taken into account. Otherwise it's not an effective intervention by any means. But on the on the larger sort of like social media Instagram level, yeah, we throw things out like very generic statements about how your weight is not equivalent to your health. Right. So and it's true at at the you know scientific level, that is true, right? Your weight does not predict <laughs> your health or cause your health outcomes the way that we're taught it does in diet culture. I think that I think this is such an interesting issue too because it gets at the idea that you know diet culture inculcates people in its way of thinking from birth. And so we're all steeped in it from the minute we 
arrive on this planet and we have this one way of seeing the world and thinking about weight and food and bodies until we're presented with another alternative, right? Until, you know, if we're lucky enough to be born into a fat positive family, maybe we get it then. Otherwise, you know, we have to come to it later, maybe through eating disorder recovery, maybe through chronic dieting recovery and efforts in adulthood to, you know, make peace with food in our bodies. And so I think when we come across those ideas, the ideas of health at every size and intuitive eating, there is a cognitive dissonance that happens. And I think there's kind of two ways to go with that. And as we spoke about on that last episode, one way is sort of digging in your heels and being like, no, this, my way is the right way, my way or the highway, basically. And the other way is openness and is, you know, maybe being intrigued and learning more and curiosity curiosity, and sort of getting at, looking at how this applies to your own life. And trusting your own experience too. Right. And trusting your own experience, but also I think questioning the received wisdom and sort of what you've internalized from the culture that maybe isn't yours. Yes. You yes. know, I think it's, it's an interesting dance with those two things, especially yeah. with intuitive eating, because, you know, I often see the diet culture framing of intuitive eating as being like, just pay exquisite attention to your body's cues and what, you know, how it feels after eating certain foods and you'll know what foods you're intolerant to, right? That's sort of like the whole 30 version of of quote unquote (laughs) intuitive eating, which is AKA not really intuitive eating, right? It's a diet. It really upsets me that people call it intuitive eating, but they're like not certified and they're not trained. And it's like, I know you're infringing on so many copyright issues right now, not to mention like causing extreme harm, but it's illegal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's completely twisting this message that is such a healing message and could provide such real benefit to people and, you know, taking it in this diety direction, which is not surprising given the hegemony of diet culture, you know? Right. I mean, it does that very well. It does. It wants to just, yeah, absorb everything into it so that it can stay in existence. And you even see that happening with, because we're talking about social justice, the way activism has been like co-opted by capitalism, you know, like the whole like Kylie Jenner, what was it, the Coca-Cola or Pepsi? I can't remember which. Pepsi, I think, yeah. You know, the commercial of her like going to a rally or whatever. And it's just like, it's, I feel like in so many ways, so much of this boils down to capitalism, but that's like, really big conversation that we don't have time for. (laughs) I know that's a whole other level, but it is so true. I mean, and I talk a little bit in my book about the money piece, like the- Yes, I remember that part. Money, the diet culture steals from us and also the ridiculous market share that diet culture holds and how much every year it just keeps growing and growing so that it's in the billions now where it was only in the millions and, you know, years ago or whatever. So, but I think, you know, this idea that intuitive eating is this like- exquisite attention to every symptom is really harmful from the perspective of, you know, thinking about true nuance and sort of true individuality when it comes to relating to food, because it's very easy to get into this idea that, oh, gluten is bad for my stomach because I feel a little bloated after I eat it or whatever it is, right? Right. That you actually, and there's research on this, and I talked about this in previous episodes of the podcast, that uh, episode 175 with Marcy Evans, I think is a really good one for this about digestive health. So good. So important. Right. And talking about the nocebo effect and this idea that when people think something is harming them, it actually can cause harm in the same way that when people think something is helping them, a placebo, it actually can help them because of the brilliant power of our mind-body connection. And it's not, you know, not to say that it's all in your head, but just that our mind and our body are so closely linked. 
more so than we even understand, really. So much more so. We're just like scratching the tip of yeah. the iceberg of what, scratching the surface, I don't know, mixing metaphors. But <laughs> <laughs> we, we got you. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're just just starting to understand it at the very basic, basic level. And I think there's so much more that we need to delve into about that mind-body connection. But, you know, I think that the fact that that connection is so strong and that the nocebo effect is such a powerful thing and that it shows up in a lot of digestive health research, I think really is a piece of critical thinking that we need to bring into our understanding of, quote unquote, how foods affect the body. Because I think right now in diet culture, the message is look to food to cure all your ills. Look to food if you're having symptoms and problems, not look to dieting and disordered eating of, you know, for what might be causing your horrible gas and bloating and constipation and feeling fatigued and all of the rest, right? Or losing your period and all the stuff. Disordered eating is rampant in our culture and it does actually have all of those effects. It can cause a lot of the same symptoms that get blamed on food and especially foods like gluten and dairy and other maligned foods under this version of diet culture that we're in now in the new millennium that I call the wellness diet, which is all about cutting out different foods, et cetera. And so, you know, I think that's that's a piece of like critical awareness that we need to bring to our understanding of how our bodies feel. Because again, kind of going back to that discussion about discomfort, physical discomfort, there's so much of that that is determined by mental processes and emotional processes and how you feel about yourself. And in the same way, I think how you feel about certain foods and how you feel about yourself and your body can really determine how you think certain foods are affecting you when in fact they're not, you know? And we do have really good validated tests for things like celiac disease or peanut allergies or milk protein allergies. Right. Allergies exist. <laughs> no one's arguing they don't. <laughs> yeah, those totally exist. And you can get tested for them by medical doctors or nurse practitioners or physician's assistants or other, you know, people in the medical field. I wouldn't go the alternative medicine route to get tested for allergies because there are a lot of unvalidated, unscientific tests out there in that world that sadly increasingly have made their way into standard medical practice as well. So you got to be really careful. I talk about that in my book too, of like which tests to avoid and which tests to put stock into. It's so sad that we even have to do that though, because like what average individual has like the time to research all of this and has like the wealth of knowledge behind them to, to critically think about this, because we could even talk about like how shitty our education system is and how we're all teaching to the test and how we don't teach critical thinking skills. And so the majority of people can't even comprehend, and, and this is not like an elitist thing, like people are unintelligent, but there is a certain level of analysis that's required to be able to understand a lot of this. And gutting our education system is one way in which diet culture and the rest of them, racism, all of them, continue to be perpetuated because we're not taught how to think. And I mean, it's understandable, you know, I have a master's degree and 10 years of experience in thinking about these issues. Right. I'm, I'm an English person. Like, yeah. that's, that's my degree. Yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. And I majored in rhetoric, too. So, like, gave right. me this, the critical <laughs> thinking skills. Even then, even with the rhetoric degree coming out of that and going straight into journalism, I was not able to critically read scientific studies. I was not able to critically think about the science on health. You know, it's interesting because the critical thinking that I learned how to do was applied to 
political theory or film or cultural, you know, memes and stuff like that. Like not memes in the sense of <laughs> social media, but memes in the actual academic sense of the term, like right. units of culture. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm so old that I have to make that <laughs> distinction. But I wasn't trained to think critically about health. And so that was an area that I sort of missed in my education about, you know, even having been trained in critical thinking in these other areas, it wasn't until much later that I had the public health degree and I had my dietitian's license. I started to apply that same critical thinking back to the new field and be like, oh, wait, this actually is something that's really worth unpacking with the help of so many activists and authors who went before me who kind of lit the way for that of like, hey, there's such a thing as sociology of medicine. You know, yeah. and, and <laughs> this is actually a huge thing. In some cases, the more degrees you have, like the more letters you have after your name, the more inculcated you are in the dominant paradigm, you know, because like we talk about all the like Harvard doctors and whatever that everyone wants to point to to invalidate us and to say that Hayes isn't real. But we also need to be cognizant of the fact that we also live in a very, not an authoritarian society, but that we we put a lot of value in someone who has, quote unquote, authority and what gives you authority. So that can be money, that can be education, degrees, all of these kinds of things that we as like a Western society have decided means that you're qualified, means that you know what you're talking about. So we don't question it. We don't question if someone who has an MD after their name, we don't question that when they tell us you need to do this for your health. And we honestly shouldn't have to. I mean, that's the other thing too, is like, there's a reason why people specialize in things. We can't, we all can't know all the things. It's impossible. So it is so important that, you know, we have critical thinkers in every single field. You know, people wanted, everyone was always like, oh, you're going to school for a writing degree. Good luck. <laughs> and it's like, everything we do is writing. Everything yeah. we do is storytelling. Yeah, it's so important. The way that we understand who we are and how we show up in this world is based on our own sense of self and our own story. Especially in this day and age of story making and creation on every platform, everybody's a writer now. I think yeah. as journalists, <laughs> it's kind of upsetting. And, you know, I was witness to that in early <laughs> in my career of like starting out like, do, 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 this is great, getting paid, doing my job, got health care and benefits and a whole thing. And then one by one, the magazines start closing and the newspapers start shutting down and nobody's getting a job in journalism anymore. It's becoming a more and more sort of rarefied thing to get one of those, you know, living wages as a journalist. And I think that's partly because writing has become so devalued slash commonplace that, you know, because everybody's doing it and everybody's a blogger and, you know, everybody considers themselves a writer in some way. An expert. <laughs> everybody considers themselves an expert. Yeah. And it's, I mean, we could get into a whole political analysis of this and how that sort of fracturing of the sense of truth or who, you know, the press and who we listen to has ushered in the rise of Trumpism and dictators around the world. And this lack of, I think, social media unwittingly tied right into that extreme right-wing philosophy and, and enabled that to come more into the mainstream because it created this sense of what is truth? Who even knows? And let everybody's got something to say and that's okay. I don't think it's bad to democratize access to storytelling. I think that's actually a great thing in so many ways, very important, but also it's had this 
side effect. But we need to be critical consumers. Yes. I mean, that's really what it is. It's like, it's, it's a wonderful thing to have everyone be able to contribute to the conversation of what it means to be a human, right? Because we all have different experiences. We all bring something different to the table, like no matter what. And so that is always a valuable thing. But if you are unable, and many of us are because we're not taught how to, if you're unable to be able to take in analysis and and perspective without a critical lens, without some sort of distance from it and some sort of grounding truth, then we end up in a very messy situation where, you know, we have people denying things that are just demonstrably true. Right. And I think that's the thing that's missing from our society right now. And that's, I mean, that that's one of the things that Hayes, I think, brings to the table so beautifully and importantly is doing that critical analysis, bringing a critical lens to what's considered sort of accepted wisdom. And I think that as the access to storytelling and messaging and sharing of ideas becomes more and more available to everyone, I think it's our culture's responsibility also to teach critical thinking and to give access to that to people without master's degrees, without, you know, that needs to be taught in elementary school. Critically reading, how do you find a good website to cite on your paper? You know, how do you know what to believe, basically? Like, And that's a really fundamental philosophical question, I think. But it's something that if we're going to live in a world where access to creation of knowledge is in the hands of everyone. We also have to learn how to filter out and and sort through what is the information that actually resonates with my values and is going to guide me towards well-being and a just and peaceful existence. Yeah. There's so much. There's so much to it. But anyway, getting back to that idea of food intolerances, right? Because that's kind of how this this all began. I mean, it it goes (laughs) like so far because it it is, there's so much to this. But I think, I think, you know, not to discount people who have legitimate medical situations with food, right? Allergies, intolerances, et cetera. You know, I actually recently discovered that I have a little bit of lactose intolerance. And so I switched to lactose-free milk and started taking lactate pills when I eat cheese. And that's a reality of my body that I'm pretty confident in and trust. Right. But like, you're not terrified of cheese or dairy. You just like made an adjustment. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And that is something that's available to, you know, I mean, yeah, lactose-free milk is a little more expensive. Lactate costs money, all that stuff. But like, it is relatively freely available to make those changes and has such less of a negative impact on my well-being and mental health than if I were to say, oh, I don't eat dairy anymore. I'm cutting out all dairy, right? And of course, cutting out all dairy might be something that's necessary for someone with a casein allergy, which is very rare, but it's an allergy to the protein in milk. And it's like a legit medical thing that people really need to be mindful of if they have it. So it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. But I think learning to make those distinctions and tell the difference between what is the sort of blanket wellness diet, Instagram influencer guru (laughs) (laughs) kind of recommendation of like, cut out dairy because it's good for your skin versus what's actually borne out in the scientific research. Because, you know, I think there is value in lived experience, but lived experience is also highly influenced by cultural factors and by things like the nocebo effect. So if you're someone who has a lived experience where you think 
oh, you know, I've heard bad things about gluten and dairy, so I'm going to try cutting them out. And then you think you feel better. You're not maybe totally sure, or maybe you have a feeling of well-being for a while from it. Well, right. I mean, it's also like, what does it mean to feel better, right? Like maybe, okay, for example, when I was in like very disordered days, I had a point at which that I was like raw vegan. It didn't really work, obviously, but that was what I decided I wanted to do. And there was a period where I did it and I was able to stick to it. And I had like a much easier time waking up in the morning and I was like, wow, like this is like the answer to everything. Like this is what I need to do. And within another week or two, like I was so deprived of basically anything that I, I couldn't, I couldn't sustain it. And I I remember thinking to myself like, wow, like I really wish I could restrict to, to this magnitude because then I'd be able to wake up early. You know, it's like, but my my mental health was in shambles. So like, what does it mean to feel better? Like, can we actually have a conversation about how something makes us feel that goes beyond, oh, well, my I'm bloated. You know what I mean? Yep. And that is, I think, the thing that happens so often in these conversations about so-called food intolerances is that when people are on the honeymoon phase of the diet, you know, you're doing the whole 30 and you're cutting out all the foods and you're like, I feel great. It's because it's the short-term effect of restriction and all of the things we've been told restriction means in our society, right? You're feeling virtuous. You're feeling good. You're feeling like you're getting to the bottom of your health issues. You're going to finally feel better. You have so much hope. You're going to solve it. Yeah, you're going to solve it. You're doing good. You're taking care of yourself. Which is such a seductive thing. I mean, it's like we all we all want to feel better. Yes, yes. We all want that. We all need, you know, some sense of hope and some sense of agency in our lives, of course. Otherwise, we'd never get out of bed. Yeah, exactly. But I think it's just placing it in diets, placing it in food restriction, placing that desire for agency and control and hope on those things is almost inevitably going to lead to heartbreak or to lack of fulfillment, you know, to to not getting the things that you want and deserve. And so, you know, I think when I talk about like thinking critically about these ideas of food intolerances, I'm really looking at it from a perspective of, I don't want you to have your life stolen by the pursuit of cutting out all these foods and by restricting things unnecessarily because it's going to negatively affect your mental health. It's likely often going to negatively affect your physical health as well because restricting all these foods often leaves you with a really limited menu that is not as good for your overall, for how you feel physically. Right. Not to mention like how your mental health impacts your physical health, which again, we don't even know the extent to how that functions, but we know that it is a factor. Yeah. We know that it's a huge factor and that, yeah, when people are suffering mentally and having disordered eating and restricting and oftentimes too, what you, you know, the thing you said about like how short term it feels great, but then longer term you're like, oh, I don't, feel as good. Maybe I need to cut out more foods. If I could just Mm, restrict like mm. that again, or if I could just restrict all these additional things, then I'd be okay. And I talked in episode 94 with Alan Levinovitz about that, about this, you know, as he puts it, this very poisonous kind of religious belief that says, if you're not, you know, self-flagellating hard enough and you need, or, and atoning for your sins enough, you're going to f- feel bad and you need to do more. And, you know, it actually can lead to feeling worse and worse about yourself and having more and more negative effects of the self-flagellation. But then the idea is, oh, I'm just not doing it hard enough. I need to do even more. And so you get in this toxic feedback loop where you're constantly 
pushing yourself. And, you know, with, with food, it really ends up in people having nothing on their plate. I've talked with so many people on the podcast who've had that experience. I had that experience myself of, you know, restricting so far that I had very few things that I would allow myself to eat. And, you know, it's just a miserable existence because then you're really just living your life based on food, based on what you can and can't eat and spending hours of your day scouring menus and thinking about what to get in the grocery store. And it's robbing you of so much life. So I think that that is my main thing about the food intolerance idea and this idea of eliminating foods and cutting out foods, quote unquote, for your health. I really would advocate for thinking about mental health and well-being and the sort of more holistic picture of a person's life in that. And looking at the fact that a lot of this is just based on the nocebo effect and it's not really necessary to cut out all these foods. Yeah. And I also just think when we think about the research, right, and and people will often point to studies and be like, this proves this. And like, first of all, if you ever see someone analyzing research and they say the word prove, they're a hack. <laughs> Because yep. <laughs> that, that pr- re- no single research study proves a damn thing. Nope. But not just that, like, you know, I'm thinking about, like I said, I'm, I'm in my under, I'm in my graduate program, so I have to write a lot of papers. And of course, I take every opportunity I can to write them about haze. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of the papers that you read, the things that they measure, the, those that do it responsibly and, and in an actually an interesting way, it is so complex. They literally will create visual webs to describe to you what they are trying to measure. Because the reality is that humans are very difficult to put into numbers. You know, like we rely on this area of academia, aka science, to inform us about how we should live our lives. But we never question how science and numbers actually reflect, or if science and numbers actually reflects the real world. Because humans are really, really complex. And, and you know, we don't like that. That is a d- distressing thing for a lot of us, the complexity of what it means to be human. And, you know, that's an understandable thing. We like certainty. But if we really want to create a world that is sustainable in every way and to create a, a population of people that are like functioning at a relatively high level, then we need to, to start thinking about what we're missing out on when we focus so hard on BMI, blood pressure, all these, these sort of things that we can easily slap a number on, calories, it is so much more vastly complicated than that. Like even the calories in calories out equation, it is so flawed for so many reasons. And, you know, logically it seems simple, right? You know, the energy cannot be created or destroyed. And if you have a deficit, you lose. And if you have, if you overshoot it, then you gain like, okay, that kind of makes sense. But then you think about how the body actually works. We are not calculators. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Like it just, and there's no way to account for so many of our bodily processes because they happen without us even knowing. Right. It's not within our intellectual and cognitive control. It's something our body does in the background on its own to keep us alive, to help us survive, to help us not lose weight, you know, to help us regain weight after a famine, which AKA diet, you know, to, (laughs) (laughs) to help our, our species survive. And yeah, it's incredible how complex all of these things are that 
tend to get just lumped under the umbrella of, but it's science. So therefore it's infallible. Right. And if we're going to have conversations about what works, then we need to make sure that we're considering all of the impacts of what we're doing. And I mean, the reality of any you know, policy implementation, cultural change, whatever, there are always unforeseen consequences, always, because the world is chaos. If we can't honestly look at these consequences and address them and adjust as necessary, then, then we're just going down the same path over and over and over again. It's like smacking your head in a wall. Which is what diet culture is, right? It's doing the same thing over and over again. And expecting a different result. <laughs> yep. And, and now I think Hayes and the anti-diet movement is coming in and saying, okay, let's actually look at the unintended consequences here and let's maybe try something different. And I think that scares people. That certainly scares diet culture. Well, right. I mean, it scares their profit margin. <laughs> yep. <laughs> They're used to a certain standard of living and yeah. this threatens yeah. it, right? But yeah, I think it's it's the only way forward. It's the only way to get past the unintended consequences that keep happening and keep doing harm to so many people. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. <laughs> I could talk with you forever, but I have to pee so bad. <laughs> yeah, I actually do too. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on and, and doing this FAQ episode again and tell people where they can find you and learn more about your work. Yeah, of course. So my website is ashleymsaruya.com. Saruya is phonetic. Don't let it trip you up. It's real easy, <laughs> but I'm sure the links will be there. And I also, um, I post on Instagram at my handle is fat positive therapy. I recently changed it and I love it. So good. And you can purchase digital downloads of my doodles to use with your clients and in presentations on my website. You can become a patron to get hooked up with recovery coaching and business coaching, all that jazz, stickers, monthly stickers, navigating nuance, FAQ, priority, all of that. And that's actually patreon.com slash cozy bay because I have not changed that yet. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put all that in the show notes so people can find you. And thank you so much again for being here. It's always so great to talk with you. Yeah, I so enjoyed it. Thank you. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Ashley Soroya for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode and subscribing to the pod on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. You can see all the places to subscribe at christyharrison.com slash subscribe. That's christyharrison.com slash subscribe. As always, if you're looking for some practical guidance to help you get started on the anti-diet path, you can get my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com strategies. And then to get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, you can go to christyharrison.com slash 225. That's christyharrison.com slash 225. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, break free from diet culture, and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. A big thanks, as always, to our editor and sound engineer, Mike Lalonde, our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, and our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. 
Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And our theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched. Ooh.